Would you join me in turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12? Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21 will be our text this morning. You'll see a number of connections in this text between uh, these verses and those which come earlier in the chapter as, as Matthew is, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, woven together a, a beautiful narrative uh, in this chapter, and we'll see him as well drawing from the Old Testament scriptures in a remarkable way. So let's uh, hear then today this uh, wonderful portion of God's Word. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Well, as you notice at the beginning of, the, of this verse, uh, of this section, this verse refers to what's just come before it. You'll remember that we've uh, read of Jesus' uh, confrontation with the Pharisees uh, over uh, his healing on the Sabbath, and he has declared himself Lord of the Sabbath, a most remarkable claim that we uh, looked at, at last week. And in response to that, then the Pharisees are conspiring for his death. Uh, he's crossed a line. And, and indeed, it's, it's the issue of the Sabbath and the place of the temple that ultimately uh, forms the, the basis for the false charges that are made against Jesus that lead to his crucifixion. So, but Jesus is aware of this. We're not told how he's aware of this. It probably, uh, it probably was pretty obvious <laughs> that the Pharisees hated him and were conspiring against him. Uh, but however he, he knew of it, uh, he is aware of it. He knows uh, literally, the text says, knowing this, Jesus withdrew. Well, why does he withdraw? It, it's certainly not the case that Jesus is seeking to escape the Father's will for him. He knows the Father's will for him is to lay down his life, to die for the sake of his own. And he will most courageously, bravely face that, but in the Father's timing. Okay. He's, he's not only obedient to do the Father's will, he's obedient to the Father's timing. Uh, we, could, we could learn a lesson from that, couldn't we? You know, there's a time for everything, Ecclesiastes says. Jesus knows there will be a time when he will walk right into the lion's den. He will walk directly into the center of power uh, of the religious and political establishment, and he will lay down his life. It won't be taken from him, but he'll lay, lay it down 
uh, but now is not the time. He is up in Galilee, still ministering, and so he withdraws from this. He, he's, he, he's always willing to confront wrong teaching. It's not that either. He, he's not somehow sort of shy about, about telling people they're wrong. He, I mean, he, he tells people, we, we just saw him telling people very forthrightly that their interpretation of Scripture was totally wrong. Uh, so so he's, he's completely honest when a rebuke needs to be made, but he's humble at the same time. He, he never rebukes for the sake of one-upmanship, for the sake of enhancing his celebrity status or something like that. He doesn't choose arguments for the sake of arguments. There's a lesson there too, isn't there? There's, there's lessons all the, all the way through this uh, passage. Uh, so Jesus withdraws. He's not going to just uh, be sucked into constant arguments with the Pharisees. He's got his own agenda. His agenda is to proclaim the gospel, to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, and to minister uh, healing uh, to people of all kinds. Uh, so he withdraws from this place where he's at, uh, confronting this, the Pharisees. We, we could note parenthetically, by the way, that there's an element of judgment in that, isn't there? They've rejected him, and so he withdraws from them. They've rejected their Messiah. They have rejected the one who's anointed to be their king. And so he withdraws from them, and the loss is theirs, isn't it? Not his. It's been said that the worst punishment God can give sometimes is to give people what they want. They want to be rid of him. And so he leaves. And, and, and the son of glory walks out of their midst. And they're not brokenhearted about it. What, a, what an indictment, not of him, but of them. He's really doing exactly what he's told his disciples to do back in chapter 10, right? When he gave them instructions about their mission. I won't take time to go back and, and read that, uh, but you might later... Jesus is doing exactly what he told them to do. When you're rejected, go on to someplace else. There are other people to hear. There are other people to minister to. Uh, and so he goes on. Now, in contrast, you notice in, in your text, in contrast to the religious establishment from which he withdraws, and you're probably glad to see him go, many follow him. See that in the first verse there? Many follow him. And those who love that next phrase. Them all. Them all. There's not one person came to Jesus, presented in Isn't that a wonderful encouragement? Jesus hears your prayers. Here's your prayers. He responds to them out of love and grace. Don't forget that. Picture yourself among those many following him, crying out to him. He hears your prayers. He heals them all. But then in verse 16, we read something which seems a little odd. If you haven't read something like this in the Gospels before, it is mentioned a few times. But 
uh, Matthew and, and much more elsewhere, but he orders these people not to make him known, uh, not to publicize what has happened. Uh, Jesus never sought celebrity status. He's not interested in that at all. He, he's the very opposite of the spirit that drives our culture right now. If, if Jesus had had an iPhone back then, he never would have taken a selfie. <laughs> he never would have called attention to himself. He's... He's not one who's going to seek celebrity status. He's not seeking political power. He's not seeking economic power. He is an itinerant poor preacher. Okay? And he never seeks celebrity status. But there's another reason why he tells them not to make him known. I mean, he could have just, you know, let things go their course and not call attention to himself, but he could have, you know not said anything to them about not making him known, but there's another reason. And, and that's because nobody has a right definition for him. Nobody has correctly identified him. And, and if they start applying labels to him, and the most likely one would be Messiah, anointed one, which is true. He is the Messiah, he is the anointed one, but he is not the kind of Messiah they think of when they use that term. They're thinking in terms of politics. They're thinking in terms of economics. They're anxious for a political Messiah, for a military leader who's going who's gonna to raise an army and throw out these hated Romans and once again establish Israel as an important nation. That's the Messiah they're looking for. They're looking for a Messiah who will feed them all the time. Okay? What a wonderful Messiah that would be to have, to have a government that just fed you all the time. You wouldn't have to work anymore. They're interested in those kinds of Messiahs. They're not interested in the kind of Messiah he is. And so he doesn't want them promoting him as Messiah because they don't know what it means. Not even his disciples. I said everyone. Everyone is mistaken at this point. Not even his disciples understand. And so he takes the wise course. He tells them, don't. Don't spread the word about me. Don't talk about me. And Matthew goes on then to say this is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This is one of many places in Matthew where we see this term, right? Matthew is constantly reaching back in the Old Testament and showing us how Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. Uh, sometime you might want to do a study of all the prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus. All the things that happened in Jesus' life that were foretold four centuries and more before he ever lived. It's, it's mind-boggling. It is totally unreasonable to think that it would just be happenstance, that, that these just happened 
I mean, if you, if you figure the use the law of probabilities to figure out the likelihood of Jesus fulfilling all these prophecies, it would be off the charts. So Matthew is doing that to remind us, you know, this is a gospel. He is, he is telling us, you, you need to believe this word. And here's an important part of that, that belief, is to see Jesus as the one who's fulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament. But, but Matthew is doing more than that, of course, with these, with these prophecies from the Old Testament. He is, he is giving us the right definition for a Messiah. He, he's revealing to us the character and the mission and the work of Jesus in the right way. The people don't have it right at this point. The disciples don't have it right. So Matthew wants to make sure as he takes us through Jesus' life, he wants to make sure that we're seeing his life in the right way. And the right way to see Jesus' life is through the lens of Scripture. Now, Matthew quotes here in our text, and this is the longest quotation he has from the Old Testament, by the way. He quotes from a, a passage in Isaiah that is, is from a series of uh, four songs in Isaiah. Much of I, the book of Isaiah is poetry. And, and in particular, it's, it's easy to recognize uh, four particular songs that people usually call songs of the servant. They're songs that are focused on a figure that's, who's called the servant of the Lord. And so it's called the servant songs. Uh, we can't take time to read them now, but, but I'll just mention where they're found for those of you who might like to read them later. They're found in Isaiah chapter 42, the first nine verses. That's where this text comes from. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Isaiah 49, 1 through 13. Isaiah 49, 1 through 13 is the second one. Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9. So chapter 50, verses 4 through 9 is the third one. And the fourth one is Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. That one may be the most familiar to you when you read them later on. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Uh, feel free to ask me for those references uh, again. Now, Matthew has already quoted from that fourth, fourth song of the servant uh, back in chapter 8. Uh, you remember when, after Jesus has healed Peter's mother-in-law, who is sick with a fever, uh, people bring everyone in the neighborhood who's sick after sundown, and he's up probably till late at night, much later than usual, uh, healing people. And back there in verse 17 of Matthew 8, uh, Matthew wrote, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And that's from that beautiful fourth servant song that may be more familiar to you than, than the others. Uh, but let's just walk through, and, and I apologize, we'll have to sort of rush through uh, this selection from uh, the first of the servant songs from Isaiah 42. Let's go through this and pick out those things in particular that identify Jesus for us and show us his work. And, and, and with the, the goal, of course, of, of benefiting from that work ourselves, of receiving his ministry. 
So look at the first verse there, the first two lines of the song as we have them there in verse 18. Jesus is identified as my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. And of course, this is God speaking. Okay, so he is the servant of the Lord, chosen by the Lord, the one loved by the Lord, the one with whom the Lord is pleased. Now, one of the debates about these servant songs is who is this servant? And, and, and people have difficulty with it in part because sometimes the servant seems to be plural and sometimes it seems to be singular. And it is true, to, to make this as short as possible, an explanation that the, the prophets, and Isaiah in particular, often use the term servant of God's people Israel. And so it, Isaiah himself, earlier in, in the book, has used it in that sense, that Israel is God's servant. Well, remember, when he delivered them from Egypt, he said to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may serve me. So, so it makes perfect sense for God's people to be called his servants. So there is a sense in which this can be applied to uh, God's people. Just one example from Isaiah 41, uh, verse 8. You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you, not cast you off. Notice that passage combines that idea of being God, the Lord's servant, being chosen by him. And that's not unique to the Old Testament, is it? That the New Testament, under the New Covenant, God's people are sometimes spoken of as a servant and are often spoken of as chosen by him. So, for instance, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. We always give thanks to you, for to God for you, uh, Paul says here, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. And, and so there's a there's a sense in which all of God's people are servants of the Lord. If if you belong to, to Christ, if you've been united with Christ by faith, you're a servant, and you're proud of that. I, I would hope. I, I would hope you would be glad to bear the title servant uh, when it's applied to your relationship with the Lord. But there is a sense in which there is a servant par excellence. Okay? There is a servant who is the most excellent servant. There is a servant in a unique sense. There is one who is chosen in a unique sense. Chosen in a sense different than all of God's people. And of course that is the anointed one, the Christ. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4, as you come to him, this is Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. We've just seen that demonstrated in our text. He's rejected by the religious establishment. He's chosen by God, chosen by God the Father. So, in, in a real sense, if we combine these two thoughts then, God's people are chosen because they're chosen in Him. You are a servant of the Lord because you're united with the servant of the Lord. 
Do you hear what that's, that means? Here's how Paul puts uh, the idea in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You, you, you see that? You are in Christ by virtue of your faith in him, and so you receive these blessings because you're in him. Okay? It, that's one of the ways that you can be more certain of the blessings that belong to you as a child of God. You think of them that way. Now, it's hard for me to think of myself as, as receiving God's blessing sometimes because I'm so aware of my own unworthiness. It, it, it is so easy for me to, if I'm focusing on, on myself, to get really, how can God bless anything I do? But look at, look at, look at my poor behavior, look at my failures, look at my mistakes. But that's the wrong way to look at it. Right? The right way is to, is to say, you are in Christ. Okay? And so God looks at Christ and he sees the one he loves. He sees the one he has chosen. He sees the one with whom he is well pleased. And because you are in him, you receive God's blessing. Paul goes on. He chose us, that is, the Father chose us, in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Chosen in Christ. Always remember that. The Father didn't choose you outside of Christ. He chose you in Christ. Because you are in Christ, you are that That's that's where the real security of a believer is. It, it's, it's believing that God has united us by faith in Christ. And knowing that the Father always receives the Son. That's our assurance. But we could go on with that. With a lot of other passages, we could look at passages that talk about being loved in Christ. The end of Romans 8 there. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God because nothing will separate the Father from the Son. You belong to Him. There's great assurance in this, isn't there? Well, we have to rush on. Look at the next two lines. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And some people see, say you can't see the Trinity very often in Scripture. I don't agree. See it right here. Right? The Father is speaking. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice. The, the work of God's salvation of his people is a Trinitarian work. Okay. They don't think of it like, well, the Father is mad at us, but, but Jesus sort of liked us, so Jesus sort of convinced the Father. That's <laughs> not the way it is. The whole Trinity purpose is this. And, and of course, you, you I, I'm sure, think immediately when, when you hear this verse, you're, you're remembering Jesus' baptism, right? When the Spirit 
comes upon him in fullness. And remember, he says, I do everything according to the will of my Father. And he does everything in the power of the Spirit. Don't, don't forget that when you read the, about the ministry of Jesus, you're looking at a Trinitarian mission. A Trinitarian mission and ministry. And so God is involved in proclaiming justice to the Gentiles. We return to that idea because that's really the key theme of these verses. Justice to the Gentiles. We'll get back to that. Notice how Jesus is characterized in verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He is not a belligerent person. He is not like, he is not like some preachers that I've heard that shout at people. <laughs> Susan and I were at service not long ago, and he said to her after, why is he shouting so much? <laughs> it's not Jesus. He speaks truly. He speaks forthrightly. But he doesn't have to badger anybody. He doesn't have to shout them down. I mean, that, that's why we shout when we argue anyway, isn't it? We're trying to shut the other person up. Half the time, we, we know we're not right. We figure if we're loud enough, we can drown them out. That, that's not Jesus. He will not quarrel or cry loud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. In fact, just the opposite. Look at the next verse. Isn't this beautiful? A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. What could be more worthless than a bruised reed? I mean, a reed isn't worth much anyway. There are reeds by the hundreds of thousands in Palestine. They were useful for some things. Uh, they, they would take reeds sometimes and use them for measuring. So like we use a yardstick. You know, you could use a reed for that. Bent reed's not going to do you much good for measuring, right? They could make uh, musical instruments out of some of these. They could, uh, because they're hollow, they could make uh, reeds that were large enough into a flute to play. Once it gets bent, it's not going to play very well. Not worth much at all, worthless when bent. And same thing for a, a smoldering wick. Literally, it says smoldering flax. It's a little piece of flax that's been laid in an oil lamp. They didn't have candles. They used oil lamps, and you'd, you'd have this little lamp with a, with a little lip in it, and you'd lay a, lay a little piece of flax in there. And the oil would travel up the wick, and you could light the flax. And if the, bro, if the flax was defective or something wrong with it, it not burning properly, it's just sort of smoking. Well, you don't want that. You know. So the natural course is going to be just to take it out and throw it away, get another one. So what's being communicated with these metaphors? It's Jesus' tenderness for those who are wounded, those who are bruised, maybe physically. I spoke to a woman yesterday. She had a cancer discovered about four years ago. Base of her spine, she's been through seven surgeries to try to reconstruct the bones after the removal of the Cancer. It's in constant pain. Jesus cares about her. 
He cares about those who are bruised physically. He cares about those who are bruised emotionally. And that's often a lot harder to deal with than the physical pain, isn't it? Have you ever had, had those moments where you actually felt like your heart was hurting? But there wasn't anything wrong. It was emotional pain. That's why we talk about things like heartache, isn't it? Because sometimes it feels like your heart's aching. Jesus cares about those who are wounded emotionally. He cares about those who are wounded spiritually. They've been sinned against. They've been abused sexually. They've been berated as children. Jesus cares about those who are bruised. He cares about those who feel like, you know, they're just about to go out. Okay? They're that smoldering wick, just barely hanging on. Jesus cares about those people. And when you stop and think about it, that's all of us, isn't it? I would be very surprised if you said, no, I've never felt that way. I've never been bruised. I've, I've never felt like I was a smoldering wick. I bet every one of us have felt that at one time or another. Maybe you're feeling it right now. Maybe there's something weighing you down right now. Maybe there's something you feel like you're on your last legs. Jesus cares. He's tender with those who are bruised. Those who are smoldering. And look at the last part of that verse. Because it's connected with this thought. Okay. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. Until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles hope. Here's that theme again. Justice to the Gentiles. You can translate this word judgment. Uh, out of the Hebrew, and that that is a valid that is a valid uh, interpretation. Uh, but usually, when we hear the word judgment, we're thinking you know a law court, you know somebody rendering a judgment or something like this. And and the word here, both in Hebrew and and Greek here, is is broader than that. So I think a word like justice helps you sort of expand your thinking about this a little bit. And you really need to expand it greatly, okay? Because when you read this word justice, I want you to think everything that you would want in a government, everything that you could possibly want in a ruler, justice, righteousness. Look at the nations of this world, how much injustice they are, there is. I mean, we, we can take pride in many things about being Americans, being in this country, but there is much that is unjust in our culture, in our government. What this is talking about is justice in the broadest possible sense. The justice that the perfect king, the king of kings, will bring. The justice of the new heavens. That's what it's talking about. 
That's the goal that Jesus is headed for. He's headed for that, that perfect state of justice for his people. And he's going to be tender with people all the way up to when he gets there. And how does he get there? Well, not the way of the world. You know, we, we sometimes want, we want justice to be done in our culture. But you know, even, even, when, even when we have those we could call just judges and just executors of the law, they never can really right or wrong, can they? Can undo the wrong. We, we can punish, and our punishment should fit the crime, and our punishment should be swift, and it should be, it should be just. But it doesn't undo the crime. That's not how Jesus establishes justice. You know how he does, don't you? He establishes justice by being bruised himself. He is the one who is the fulfillment of that prophecy back in Genesis. It's using a different Hebrew word, I know that. <laughs> but it does say, the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. And he does that by satisfying God's justice. That's a remarkable thing. He does that by satisfying God's justice. You see, he can't bring you into a just kingdom as a sinner. Somebody has said, don't ever look for a perfect church and join it. Because as soon as you join it, it won't be perfect anymore. <laughs> well, that's sort of the way it is with the kingdom of God. I'm a sinner. He lets me into that kingdom. It's, it's automatically corrupted by my very presence. But Jesus deals with that, doesn't he? Because he takes your sin upon himself. And he suffers hell for that sin. Justice is meted out to him. And remember, we said earlier, if you're in him, if you've been united with him by faith, he takes God's justice on your behalf. He is a king like no other. He is a judge like no other. He is a God like no other. He takes his people's sin upon himself. And he doesn't stop there. Because even if he took all your sin away from you, you're still not righteous. Okay. Because righteousness is a positive thing. Justice is a positive thing. It's not just not doing something. It's doing righteousness. It's being righteous. And so he takes your sin upon him and, and suffers the just wrath of God on your behalf and then he clothes you in his righteousness 
that righteousness that we see so beautifully illustrated in this text, that righteousness that reaches out to those who are bruised, that heals everyone, that speaks the good news to everyone, he calls everyone to repentance. All that righteousness that you see in Jesus' life, all 33 years, and not just the three years he's preaching, all that time he was working with his hands as well, all that righteousness is credited to you and clothed in his righteousness, you enter into his kingdom. That's, that's the Savior we have. That's the Savior we have. He is the one whom we follow. And the one who lives within us by his Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we ask that, that you would be the one whom you promised you would be, the one who you reveal yourself to be, even in this passage. We come to you, Lord, so often as those who are bruised, those who are just barely hanging on. We're so grateful that we can come to you knowing knowing that we will be received. That as we place our faith in you, we are chosen, we are loved, we are filled with your spirit. Help us to live in light of these wonderful truths this week. May we, may we be those who, who experience your life in us and who, contrary to our own sinful nature, act in the same way to other people. Uh, help us to be those who, who speak justice, the justice that's found in the gospel to those who need to hear it, who, who minister to those who are bruised, who are sensitive to those who are just barely hanging on, and come alongside them rather than shoving them out of, out of the way. And we, we, Lord, will give you all the praise and glory for that because we believe it will be a work that you're doing in us and through us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.